Welcome to the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you haven't joined us before, we're passionate about all things internal medicine and helping you become the best tech you can be. We'll be discussing interesting internal medicine diseases, how to work closely with pet parents, and how to become the go-to tech in your practice. Now, let's start the show. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. Hope you all are doing well and getting your learn on. Obviously, if you're listening to us, I guess you're getting your learn on. (laughs) (laughs) This is very true. (laughs) Yep. Um, We are your hosts. I am Jordan Porter, joined by the wonderful, amazing, beautiful, smart Yvonne Brandenburg. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. You just had to, like, one-up me because I did one last week, right? Is that what this is? (laughs) I'm just in a good mood. It's a big day today. I know. Oh my God. It's so exciting. So we are recording this on Sunday, August 23rd, 2020. And like, this is kind of a big day for us. It's a big day. I'm like, my anxiety is like through the roof, <laughs> right? but then I'm also like <laughs> super excited, but I'm like, <sighs> oh my God, what if nobody joins? Seriously. So, okay. So what we're talking about is the internal medicine for vet techs membership site. It opens today. Today's the day we're opening. It's live. It's live. Live and in living color. (laughs) So nerve wracking. Do you not, you don't even get that reference. Again, I'm older than you. Live and in living color. Mm -mm. Oh man. For all of you that maybe were born before 1985, you understand that reference. So live and in living color. Um, it's fine. Sorry. Anyways, so, <laughs> so the membership opens today. We're really excited. Like literally the membership opens technically like 15 minutes ago. Um, yeah. <laughs> we scrambled to get like all of our stuff in place and it is live. It's very exciting. So if you're listening to this on Tuesday, what is that? The 25th? Mm-hmm. It's 25th. When this goes live, um, the membership is open. Um, so definitely head over to internal medicine for vet techs membership.com. Uh, it is. So I think we've kind of touched on the membership a little bit so far, but basically what it is, is it's a place where you can get uh, race approved CE. So race approved CE, it's a big deal in uh, the U.S. obviously for like getting your RBT or RBT, LBT, CBT, LVMT uh, renewed. (laughs) Depends on what uh, state you're in. And then I believe Canada also uses it for their registration because we were just talking to Matt yesterday about that. And um, Mm -hmm. so I know they use uh, the VTNE and stuff. So we've also been talking with Laura Rosewell from veterinaryinternalmedicinenursing.com. If you don't know her, I'm not sure why you need to know her. She's amazing. But we were talking to her and uh, it is for CPD, which is in the UK. Um, It counts towards the CPD, which is continuous professional development. Um, And we're working on getting a QR code to make it easier for everybody to just scan the QR code in their, in their system over there. So, you know, if, if you have questions it all, it all counts for it and it's internal medicine specific. So if you're, you know, working on your VTS, the great thing about our internal medicine CE is it's internal medicine. So it definitely counts for your application. 
Um, Especially because it's given by VTSs and it is race approved. Exactly, which is which is a big thing for your application. Um, yes. And then let's see what else. So we've got uh, the, we have our community, which is pretty great. Yeah. So we've got some pretty amazing people in our community already mm-hmm. um, because we did we did kind of do a soft opening for some of our some some founding members. Um, we invited a couple of people in just to test to test things, which is good because they worked out some of the bugs. <laughs> yes. And we're very appreciative of that. Um, well, we've started a couple specific forums to talk about. We've talked about burnout so far a little bit. We've talked about some case studies. We've talked about just kind of like where we're all from and what we're doing, what our interests are. Um, So it's a nice, very like close knit community for everybody to just kind of talk about specific things that you might not be able to find on Facebook specifically. Um, So I think that's pretty nice. That are, you know, linked by interest. So like we have a a VTNE group that, you know, they're, mm-hmm. they're kind of working on getting their VTNE or passing their VTNE, not getting it. Um, and then we have like a VTS group that they're kind of talking to each other and just, <laughs> you know, being that supportive group that we all need when we're getting our applications done. So, you know, there's, there's different, different things and, and there's people around the, the globe, which it, it kills me every time I think of this, like we have members from the United States, Canada, Australia, and, and New Zealand, New Zealand, and the Netherlands, which blows my mind. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, it is, it is a place where it doesn't matter where you are in the, uh, on the globe, you can connect to people who, you know, have a passion for veterinary medicine and a passion for internal medicine. And, so we we're really fortunate and uh, we do have a bonus episode that will be going out as well um, with some of our uh, founding members. And so we mm-hmm. talked to them a little bit about like why they, you know, joined the membership and some of the benefits. So if you, if you're interested, definitely check that out. So download that, that bonus episode with our founding members. Um, it was fun talking to them. I had a, had a great time yesterday talking to them. It was, it was a lot of fun and we'll probably do that more throughout the next couple months talking to some of our members, which is also what I think is great because like, I know when I was, I don't know, I guess in the position of trying to better myself, I didn't have any access to like reach out to people who've already like done things that I was interested in doing, like obtaining their VTS. So I just kind of went in it blindly versus we're getting emails or comments or messages from people who are interested in it. And I think it's nice to kind of connect on that level where people admire what we've already done, like obtaining our VTS. And like we can help them. Yeah. Yeah. Like they know that they can reach out to us and ask us questions or even just talk to us. And it's it's nice. And it's kind of mind blowing too, because I (laughs) still feel like I'm not as awesome as some people seem right. to think that I, I am. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not that cool. Really? No, spend a couple yeah. minutes talking to me and you'll understand what that means. Yeah. Yeah. But it, but it is really cool to have like someone that you can ask those questions to. And, and we love answering those questions because that means you're interested in it. And that, you know, that to us is, is the world. Like we want our Academy. I would love our Academy to be the biggest Academy there is. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, <laughs> that is a extremely lofty goal compared to the Emergency and Critical Care Society, but yeah, 
one day at a time, Jordan, will help make the Academy stronger by helping you guys find a love of internal medicine. <laughs> but if you, um, you know, if you would like a supportive environment for just learning and getting CE and, and finding a community, that's what internal medicine for vet membership.com is all about. So check that out. Um, we are holding a raffle as well. May as well just mm -hmm. say that. Um, you may have seen it around. We are we're raffling. So during our launch period, which is now through September 6th, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So now through September 6th, we um, we're it's our special launch pr launch pricing. So definitely um, check that out. And uh, after this launch period, it will go up to full price. So, you know, talk to your bosses <laughs> about getting some some CE money, because this definitely, you can, you can pitch it that way to your boss. Cause that's how I do things. I pitch it to my boss and I'm like, Hey, check out the CE money that I can do. Yeah. Um, but we're also doing a raffle. So, um, definitely check out our Facebook page and, uh, the internal medicine for vet techs podcast, uh, Facebook page. We, uh, have the raffle there. And so we're giving away a one year free membership. And then we also have, I think we did 10 free months, mm -hmm. like 10 yep. individual one free month memberships too. So, you know, definitely check that out. There's, there's a, there's a bunch of ways to get into that raffle. Um, cause we wanted to make it fun. Yeah. And we'll Plus be, who doesn't like trying to win something, right? Yeah. You can win something. Yes. Um, yeah. So we've got, we've got some more things kind of up our sleeve that we'll be announcing over the next week or two. So if you're listening to this live, definitely, you know, join the email list so you can be the first ones to know about things because certain things will only be available to our email list. Um, and then there's going to be some things that's only available on our Facebook. And so we're going to, we're going to have fun the next two weeks. I'm, I'm excited. Yes. All right. Enough about all, right. all that. <laughs> Let's get some learn on. <laughs> exactly. So. All right. Well, this We're week. Going with our liver series. Definitely. Diving. Well, diving in a little deeper yeah. into the liver series. Yeah. Um, getting out of the gallbladder, moving into the liver. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> So this week we're going to be discussing chronic hepatitis. Just when the liver becomes inflamed, we see some jaundice. We see, you know, why are we having this chronic hepatitis where it lasts longer than a couple weeks? So again, we're discussing inflammation of the liver. It can result from many different disease processes that it has occurred over several weeks versus our acute hepatitis, which we will get into next week. Um, kind of those rapid, like something specific hits and angers the liver next week is what we're going to talk about. But this week, again, chronic inflammation over several weeks that it's, it can be caused by many different things, many different disease processes. Sometimes it starts out acute and then turns into chronic. Um, so our anatomy and physiology for this section. So inflammation of the liver can occur due to like an infiltration of white blood cells. We know that white blood cells become active from the immune system. And the purpose of those is to kind of destroy things that shouldn't be there. And the liver filters a lot. So there's a lot of cells going through the liver all at once. Um, but massive inflammation can actually cause cell death of the liver or necrosis. So our chronic hepatitis can actually lead to 
necrosis of the liver. Um, but remember, like for our acute hepatitis that we'll get into next week, the, the liver is capable of repair. But when we're discussing chronic hepatitis, usually the liver was unable to repair itself. Right. Like there's so there much There was damage. permanent damage. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, honestly, there's there is damage that can be repaired, but at some point it's just too much. And, and Mm -hmm. in order for tissues to repair, there has to be blood flow to it. There has to be, you know, um, tissues that are available. So if you've got scarring on all that, just like with, you know, the Mm -hmm. rest of your body, if you've got scarring, um, if you remember from tech school, like way back when, when we were talking about wounds and tissue repair and then scars that those, those tissues are never as strong as like the original tissue. So it can't go back to full normal, but you know, a certain amount of damage, yes, it can repair. But at at some point the body's like, no, I'm done. I can't, I can't repair it. Yeah. One, it's just like an external scar on your own body. Like mm-hmm. I have plenty of scars from dogs and cats. Right. Um, and that tissue just isn't quite the same. It's changed. It's a little bit tougher, but it, it doesn't go back to normal. And the, and the liver does the same thing. Like it, I have had some scratches and stuff like that, that repair perfectly normal. And you can never tell that there was an injury there in the first place. Mm. But then I have other scars that did heal differently and they have that typical scar tissue. So the liver mm. does the exact same thing. Yeah. Um, causes for inflammation can be variable. There can be <laughs> infectious <sorts> <laughs> agents. Yes. Um, bacteria or viruses, toxins, neoplasia, or even just an autoimmune response mm-hmm. um, where the body's just like, we're going to send white blood cells here. We don't really know why, but the body's going to start attacking itself. Right. So that can occur. Um, and it's, and it's hard to really make a definitive diagnosis mm-hmm. on the liver without biopsy sometimes. So, yeah. And we get into that and like, I went into some pretty good detail about how to kind of determine what's causing the inflammation of the liver. Yeah. A lot of times it's hard to talk to a client about that because, oh yeah, they don't understand why we need to do like, okay, yeah, we're going to start with these tests, these basic tests, but then we're going to recommend this. And then we're going to recommend this. And then we're going to recommend this. And they're like, well, we haven't gotten an answer yet. And we've done all these tests were like, oh, that's internal medicine. Like we've ruled out a lot of stuff, you know, the diagnosis of rule outs sometimes. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, We've ruled out Lyme disease or leptospirosis or neoplasia, or we've ruled out all of this other stuff, but yeah, we still don't have an answer as to why your dog's liver isn't functioning the way it should at a hundred percent. And a lot of times too, this is what angers clients. So too, is that there's a lot of drug associated hepatitis that occurs because the liver metabolizes a lot of drugs. And so things like our NSAIDs, our chemotherapy, our anticonvulsants, like a lot of, yeah, Yeah. a lot of these. And I think that's where kind of client communication can come into play where, especially when we prescribe like antifungals or I have an epileptic dog myself. And there was a discussion about how anticonvulsants can damage her liver but that's not always discussed with clients. So when they come in and their liver values are elevated, we're like, well, it very well could be from the NSAIDs that you're on for the limping, or it can be from anticonvulsants. Because I I think for us in internal medicine, like we usually get it when it's already a problem. Right. So it's, it's, 
And we don't want to throw the other vets under the bus. Like you're, you're doing your job. You are trying to fix a certain problem. And yes, that may have led to another problem, but and you also don't want to scare clients from treating something, you know? No, but it's, it, you you do have that, have to have that conversation that says, it's like the informed consent thing, right? Where you mm-hmm. say, well, hopefully, and hopefully your doctors are having this conversation. Yeah. Um, especially I think in internal medicine, like we said, you know, the antifungals is like kind of the, the big one that we think of with liver disease. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we, I don't know if you guys do this, but um, in California, we're required to have a conversation about medications. We're not, you're not required. So we are as of, I think as of this year. Um, and so we got, um, or maybe it was last year anyways, really recently. Um, so like the plums veterinary, um, website, mm-hmm. they have the handouts, just like yeah. when you go to the pharmacy and you get a handout about the medication, they have them for veterinary medications, but it's really important to be like, look, we're going to use this drug, you know, it can cause liver inflammation, damage, whatever. We need to recheck values. So mm-hmm. please just know some animals are totally fine with this drug and some animals have issues, but you need to make sure that we monitor so it doesn't become life-threatening. Um, it's kind of like, so. you know how, I know on Facebook, I've seen a lot of the debates about like, well, have you seen that this heartworm prevention can cause seizures? And I'm like, you got to kind of look into it a <laughs> right. little bit more because it's a lot of like medications, the commercials, right? May cause yes. seizures, death and dying and limping you have and to, eyeballs yeah. falling out or whatever it is, headaches. And you have to realize <laughs> that when they're running drug trials. They have to record yep. every side effect, quote unquote, side effect that occurs from these things. Now, mind you, but like anytime they run a drug trial on any medication, they have to record any sort of side effect that occurs, whether it be vomiting, diarrhea, seizures. So say Even if dog- it's not related to that drug whatsoever, it just happens exactly. during that time period. So they have to legally include it. Which yeah. Is so they're, they're taking drug A and drug while on drug A, the dog had a seizure or the dog had diarrhea or the dog- Or the dog um, died. A thinkable episode. Yeah, exactly. They have to record yeah. it. Even if the dog, it's kind of, even if the dog- had some sort of underlying condition and died from something else, they have to record have to that record as a well on the medication. Yep. So I think that's a weird thing where like, I think commonly when I'm discussing a certain medication with clients, I think of like when we give IV contrast during CT scans, I discuss with them like this can cause renal failure. It doesn't, I haven't seen it knock on wood, but mm-hmm. it can cause renal failure. So if your dog starts showing signs of renal failure in a week, like just know that that may have been due to the contrast and we should check blood values. Right. So it's such a fine line where you don't want to scare clients off, but you want to make them aware. Right. Because unfortunately, well, fortunately, unfortunately it's that informed consent thing, right? So Mm -hmm. it's, if we don't tell them and something happens, then the clinic is legally responsible, legally liable for it. But if we have that conversation with an owner and we're like, Hey, we're going to do this procedure, or we're going to start this medication and liver toxicity is a known side effect and they have liver disease or liver damage from it. Well, then we're like, yeah, you know, we hoped it wouldn't happen, but it did. We caught it early, hopefully, because Mm -hmm. we said, you know, follow up with this and, and, you know, we can 
kind of reverse some of the damage instead of them not knowing about it. And then they come in when the animal's sick and then all of a sudden, like, it's really bad inflammation or necrosis going on. And we're like, Ooh, should have come in earlier, but they didn't know. Yeah. Kind of thing. So again, that's, that's a big thing, both as a veterinarian and as a technician that we follow up with our clients. And, and I think it goes to, so say we have an acute hepatitis case that comes in, mind you, again, our doctors should be having these conversations, but it's a toxin. It's a known toxin. They watch their dog eat ibuprofen mm. and now we're treating an acute hepatitis. The conversation should be had that chronic hepatitis can occur due to poor response to therapy. Mm. So yeah, we're treating our mm. acute hepatitis and yes, the dog is getting better. However, they may have permanent damage. They might get completely better if they respond well to therapy and they may never show any signs of liver issues ever again. But they should be informed that you very well might be dealing with lifelong chronic hepatitis and keep a very close eye on things. Yeah. Yep. yep. Exactly. So how this can kind of present our predispositions. So it affects canines more than felines. I think dogs have a tendency of putting more things in their mouth. Um, but in general, we have a, we do have some idiopathic chronic hepatitis that can occur too. And that affects more dogs than cats. Um, I totally would agree with that. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah. It's mostly, mostly dogs. I see. <laughs> it can affect any breed of dogs, but middle-aged to older dogs are more commonly affected except for our Dobermans. They are special. They <laughs> Dobermans tend to be more commonly represented and tend to be young to middle-aged and tend to be female. Dogs like Dobermans wow. apparently do their own thing with chronic hepatitis. That's versus- insane because as soon as you said that, I just think of like one specific patient and I was like, uh-huh. yep, that's her. <laughs> See, and I think like our Dobermans can get like copper storage disease mm-hmm. and like, um, so, but that's different. I'm not going to go into the copper storage stuff in this episode. We will have a separate episode on that. Um, other breeds that tend to show us with our chronic hepatitis patients tend to be Cocker Spaniels, Labrador Retrievers, Bedlington Terriers, Standard Poodles, West Highland Terriers, and Maltese's are represented. And see, when mm-hmm. I think of Maltese's, I think of the very few cases I've seen of hepatic encephalopathy <laughs> or Maltese's. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm trying, I, and I'm thinking of the couple that I have right now that yeah, they're it's like they're our liver shunty patients. Yeah, like and it's <laughs> and I have one Maltese actually. That's funny. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also not going to get into hepatic encephalopathy because I love that disease, and that's going to be its own separate episode. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but clinical signs for chronic hepatitis can be widely variable. Yeah. Like there's a number, a large number of patients who are subclinical, especially in like the acute phase of the hepatitis, where they're not really showing any symptoms, but their livers are angry and inflamed for unknown reasons. Um, So unfortunately, treatment is not started soon enough to avoid that permanent damage that leads to chronic hepatitis Mm. because of the subclinical phase. Um, But once we get into the clinical phase, the clinical signs are very variable and very internal medicine like <laughs> did you in your in your kind of research with these notes did it talk about so subclinical i mean how are owners supposed to recognize it like or is it just one of those like it's subclinical and so it's just found randomly on lab work yeah it's one of those things mm-hmm. where it's just kind of because it's subclinical um it's one of those things where patients will come in for an annual exam 
I had a, I had a case like this actually yeah. last week. Um, dog went in just for like pre-surgical blood work to have a skin tag removed. Right. And they noticed that the ALT was high. Otherwise the dog was asymptomatic. It yeah. was and but this dog once obtaining a history had started and said about three to four weeks prior mm. because the blood work from three to four months ago was completely normal. Yeah. And, and actually it's funny that you say that because we get a ton of referrals for like the patients that went in for like their annual teeth mm-hmm. cleaning or whatever. And, yep. and that is, is a really important, you know, thing to remember in like a general practice or just, you know, I, well, I'm going to say general practice because you're, you're dealing more with, you're seeing it before we do dental cleanings and yearly lab or yearly exams and stuff like that. It is important to remember that having a yearly lab work on a patient who's healthy, quote unquote healthy is a very good thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you work in a clinic that, you know, you guys have an in-house, you know, uh, wellness plan, or, um, you have patients that have insurance, you know, it's, it's a good idea. It's like gold standard, right. To recommend yearly lab work because you can catch things a lot sooner. Like Mm -hmm. I can't tell you how many patients come into our clinic and they're seven or eight years old and they've never had blood work done until oh, yeah. like they went in for a dental cleaning and they're like, Oh my God, all these, ner-. well, we have no idea how long that's been going on because yeah. there's no reference point. So for us, you know, and, and doctors, yes, it is their, their position also to advocate. Right. But it's also our position to be like, Hey, you know, we recommend yearly lab work, yearly screening to make sure we're going to catch things earlier and if there's nothing wrong, well, yay, nothing's wrong, but we also well, have I, baselines too. So I think it's important too, to try to recommend baseline blood work before starting certain medications. You have a dog coming mm-hmm. in for general arthritis, but that's the only complaint. Let's run some baseline blood work. So that way we know if we start NSAIDs and in a couple of months, when we come back to recheck these values, they're a little high, like, okay, well, we were normal before starting NSAIDs and now we're, our ALT is 189 after starting NSAIDs. Like yeah. it's important to kind of try to see that trend because we know certain medications can cause elevations. Yeah. Yep. So when these, when these patients do become clinical though, unfortunately it's because of these disease has generally progressed, but they can be super vague. So decreased appetite, weight loss, vomiting, diarrhea, PUPD can occur. Oh, you mean like Uh, every internal medicine patient? (laughs) Have you seen my differential diagnosis list? I tried to like, like, it's all of it. (laughs) It's all of it. Um, jaundice, can definitely be a more yeah. specific indicator for liver disease, as we talked about in last week's episode. Um, also, they're yellow, about, don't poke. <laughs> yes, don't poke their jugular. Try not to do a cystocentesis. Try to go for smaller veins with smaller needles. Where you can um, apply a pressure wrap. Yep, exactly. As the disease progresses, these patients can also present with abdominal effusion, oh, neurologic yeah. signs like our hepatic encephalopathy patients, and coagulopathies. So unfortunately, again, like, I think of every hepatic encephalopathy case I've ever seen, they were subclinical up until they had hepatic encephalopathy and it was a very rapid transition. Well, (laughs) I think, I think part of the reason for that is, you know, just like with people, you know, we're people and animals are really good at kind of ignoring little mm -hmm. stuff as it creeps up until we can't ignore it anymore. And then we feel like crap. 
So Can, it's, it's, it's hard. You know, are like the normal, like liver shunt patients that come in and they're just like smaller than normal. Like they don't really have signs mm. of disease. They're just smaller than normal. Their hair coat might not be as shiny as like a normal dog, but it's normal. It's normal for them. Like quote unquote right? normal for them. They miss an, uh, they miss a meal occasionally or they're slow to eat. Like they, you put food down and they eat, but it takes them a couple hours to finish their meal. Yeah. And then they just kind of stay small, but that's normal for them. It's always um, normal for them. That's yeah, why exactly. asking your clients, if your patient is normal, don't ask that question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because there's so many because, times yes, it is normal it for vomiting them. Vomiting once a day is normal for them or it, you know, vom or diarrhea is normal or it drinking 10 cups of water a day is normal for them. And I've oh, had a client tell, tell me that. And I was like, yes. that's not normal, but it was like their first dog and they had no idea. Yeah. So, so I think quantifying it is things is a good thing too. Yeah, exactly. Especially in these patients, because you can maybe notice like hepatitis prior to it becoming like permanent damage. Mm -hmm. Um, and then of course, like our coagulopathy. So I, I hope that nobody's seeing these patients when they start bleeding, but Ugh. it can happen. Yeah. Um, so again, because of the vague clinical signs and then the variable clinical signs. So our differential diagnosis list is classic internal medicine. There's a lot of things on it. <laughs> right. Um, but the etiology of this disease is unknown a, a lot of times. And so chronic hepatitis is, can be labeled idiopathic, but it can be a diagnosis. Yeah, of I, I was going to say, God. Yeah, it is. It really is a diagnosis of rule outs. And then sometimes we say it's idiopathic. Like we just don't know because you know, for whatever reason, either the clients can't afford to do, you know, biopsies or the patient's not stable enough to do biopsies or, you know, just a couple of different reasons or they're older, you know, and, and they don't want to do yeah. the workup. So I think sometimes we just kind of say it's idiopathic at this point because we, we don't know the reason behind it we suspect and we have a differential diagnosis because we've ruled out other things, but sometimes, um, sometimes we just don't know, which is about. Yeah. And so what should be on our list of things that we should rule out, um, is toxins, infectious agents, which we are going to discuss more in depth next week. When we talk about acute hepatitis, um, mm -hmm. I'm going to try to really go into a lot of detail about our infectious agents that can cause hepatitis. Uh, viruses, diabetes, renal disease, thyroid disease, neoplasia, GI disease. I put DIC on here just because we can have coagulopathies. Uh, and same mm, thing with Bonner yeah. LeBron disease. Again, we can have uh, coagulopathies. Addison's disease, because as we mm. talk about the lab work that we're going to do, we can see some electrolyte changes from like ascites and hypoalbuminemia that can kind of mm. steer, yeah, mimic, mimic Addison's disease. And then we have our neurologic disorders too that we need to rule out because again, a lot of these cases we can see like hepatic encephalopathy, but you need to rule out mm. other neurologic diseases before we can blame the liver for neuro issues <laughs> completely. Right. Yeah. And I think it's really important to say when we say a differential diagnosis, you know, when we're talking differential diagnosis of like diabetes kidney disease, thyroid disease, those kinds of things. It's, 
it's you you know you need to make sure that you do a full mm-hmm. chemistry a lot of times and and most of the times when we do that full chemistry we're like nope those are ruled out we're left with liver yeah. so you know it could be one of those things where we we're like what is going on with our patient we have vomiting diarrhea lethargy you know and then we say okay here's our rule out so we talk to the owners so this is like some of these rule outs are before exactly. blood work is done. Right. So it, you know, a lot of them are it, because we're dealing, yeah, we're dealing with like decreased appetite, weight loss, PUPD, vomiting, diarrhea, you know, so we can be dealing with a lot of symptoms prior to running lab work. So when clients are like, well, what do you think it is? And we're like, well, <laughs> we mm. need to do lab work. <laughs> Here's a long list of things. <laughs> yeah. My magic. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Which is so frustrating for clients because they're like, well, it has to be this. And I'm like, unless your pet's jaundice, I can't be sure. (laughs) And even if the pet is jaundice, how do you know it's not some sort of toxin that's also destroying the kidneys at the same time? So it's, it's very much, we need to have everything on the list so we can go down the list of lab work that needs to be performed. Mm-hmm. And just make sure too, that you don't ha- you're not dealing with like comorbidities, mm-hmm. right? The other thing I think of when I think of liver and toxins and stuff like that is like xylitol mm-hmm. toxicity, right? That, that it, it plays a big role in, you know, your, your glucose and the liver and just how the patient is doing in general. So you can get a toxin or something like that, that hits multiple mm-hmm. organs. So it's really important to not just assume it's one and, and you yeah. don't have, again, those com- comorbidities. That well, are just because be we run lab work, it doesn't necessarily, it's not going to rule out everything after your first go. It's not going to just scream liver disease. Right. Cause like I said, you can have things that can make you think that it could be Addison's disease because your electrolytes are all wonky. Um, or it could make you think that mm-hmm. you have some sort of like xylitol toxicity or even a brain tumor causing hypoglycemia, you know? So it's one of these things that we just have to kind of go step by step. Um, Yep. So of course we're going to run biochemistries. Our ALT does tend to be elevated Mm -hmm. even in our subclinical phase. So this is kind of going to be the first indicators having an elevated ALT, even if the pets are asymptomatic. And then, um, ALP and total bilirubin elevations are usually seen once the patient does become clinical. So once we, especially when we see a total bilirubin that's elevated, we can strongly suspect liver disease. Sometimes on our biochemistries, we can also see decreases in our BUN, our glucose, and our cholesterol. And then of course, to kind of like we talked about in last week's episode, hypoalbuminemia can be noted and that can lead to ascites and ascites can lead to like the third spacing of fluids causing our electrolyte changes like hyperkalemia and hyponatremia, which again can make you believe that you might be dealing with an Addisonian. If you're just running lab work and you haven't performed any other testing, so you can't see that the patient has ascites, you're having that fluid shift causing these electrolyte changes. But again, you're going to want to go down the list and kind of keep moving forward with the diagnostics to be like, oh, we really have ascites here and hypoalbuminemia that is causing our electrolyte changes and causing our patient to be hyperkalemic and hyponatremic. I think, yeah, I mean, and and we talk about 
chemistries mm-hmm. all the time, I think. Right. And again, so it's, it's making sure we get our baseline stuff and that, and that includes the CBC, right. Um, we've talked about, especially like coagulopathies and stuff like that. So do we have, um, and I think, uh, did we talk about, we, we talked about non-regenerative versus regenerative anemia in our hematology. I think we touched on it a little bit. I think at some point, obviously we're probably, we're most likely going to get into more detail about that. Do it again. Yeah. And, uh, so non-regenerative versus regenerative anemia. Let's just talk about that really quick. Um, so regenerative is the body is responding. It's making new red blood cells. Non-regenerative is the body doesn't realize that we're anemic. And so it just is letting old red blood cells sit there and not pumping out more young cells to replace it. And, and usually when we're seeing that you're, you've got more of like a chronic disease, right? And so maybe the bone marrow is depleted, um, or other resources that make the red blood cells have been depleted. So looking at our CBC, looking for non-regenerative anemia versus regenerative, um, looking at a leukocytosis, do we have like an increased white blood cell count? So we're we're looking for infection. Do we have hyperglobulinemia? I can never say that. Um, so do we have excess, you know, the GGT in there or, um, proteins, you know, what's kind of going on in there. And then you've got thrombocytosis. So if we've got, um, an increase in platelets? Yes, because if you have chronic hemorrhage, your bone marrow is still going to respond because it's not an immune suppression. It's an actual hemorrhage. So your bone marrow is going to respond and be like, I need more platelets. This is what I read up on because I was like, Wait, so this is like, so this is consistent with like a, a bleeding patient? Is that yeah. kind of what we're Yeah, with? it's only consistent if you have a severe uh, chronic hepatitis patient that does have coagulopathies. So our coags are abnormal, but our platelets are trying to compensate and we have like bleeding tendencies. That makes sense. So you have the thrombocytosis because other clotting factors besides Mm -hmm. the platelets are depleted or whatever. And so you're, you're hemorrhaging. So the bone marrow is like, wait, stop bleeding. bleeding Yes. Exactly. Platelets. Got it. Okay. Well, I, you have sense. to like, I had um, to like break it down my brain. I was like, I swear this is a typo. Like when I was researching it and then like, I kept afraid. <laughs> I was like, no, yeah, I kept reading right. it. And then I was like, and then my brain started to kind of like move along with it too. And I was like, cool. <laughs> like, all right, all right. Versus we, with we, our we, like, see, Jordan and I always like learn right? these podcasts. versus our non-regenerative <laughs> anemia because it's consistent with chronic disease. That's kind of like the body's quote unquote normal state now. So they don't have that regeneration where their body feels the need to replace those red blood cells. But when you have chronic hemorrhage, Mm -hmm. your body's like, what the heck? Why aren't my my coagulation factors working? So I'm going to produce a bunch of platelets and stop all this bleeding, even though it's only a Band-Aid. Yeah. Well, and and when we're talking about chronic hemorrhaging, it's not just red blood cells and white blood cells that are lost. It's also proteins mm-hmm. and fluids and all sorts of stuff that's, that's coming out. Um, and so, yeah, that, I mean, it makes sense. And so, you know, looking at a CBC, you know, you can't just look at one number. You have to look at the the whole thing, yeah. which is 
what internal medicine which is crazy because again when i was in <laughs> gp i can think of multiple times and it's sad to say but i can think of multiple times where like something would be abnormal and i would ask about it and the doctors would be like oh it's not a big deal it's kind of like the alp thing like we mm. talked about last week like which we kind of do too and not as much in internal medicine but it's one of those things where we get those cases where like the alp is high and we're like, let's look for Cushing's. But at the same time, like your ALP is not the worst we've ever seen. Like, so it's not like dire. Right. And the same thing. So when I was talking about that case earlier about the NSAID, my patient mm. who started NSAIDs a couple months ago and then rechecked blood work for like routine surgery and was asymptomatic and the ALT was normal. I think it was like, I don't know, 120-ish maybe. And then went up to like 189. So it wasn't crazy scary high in like our world we're like oh that's not that bad but same time you're doing like a really good job by right. getting on top of it before it gets to the 800 and you're like oh, oh my god <laughs> right yeah or it's too high to yeah when you have to dilute it out you're like what do i do awesome Ooh. uh we do yeah. recommend doing a urinalysis on these patients these patients do tend to <laughs> free catch. yes free catch very right. much so Sorry. <laughs> there can be some minor changes in these patients. They can have isocyanuria. That was first time. <laughs> I like that word is fun to say. Isocyanuria. Um, that's a urine specific gravity. If you remember from our renal disease episode, urine specific gravity of 1008 mm -hmm. to 1012. Um, sometimes you can see bilirubinuria, but again, if our patients are kind of subclinical, you're likely to not note bilirubinuria. Ammonium urate or biurate mm -hmm. crystals can be seen too. Because again, like we kind of talked in our basics episode, we can see those kind of crystals when we do have liver disease or liver, liver damage. This is my favorite part of our diagnostics because we went on so many soapboxes about this. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> uh oh, which one? Which, which soapbox? We're going are on we the going coag on soapbox here. Uh, well, this is why we have an entire episode. I do about like that, the coagulation episode. Um, we recommend running PT and APTT. And of course, Yvonne, if you have the special tests, <laughs> then yes, please run the viscoelastogram. <laughs> um, but both the APTT and the PT can be elevated just due to a lack of production of the coagulation mm. factors with chronic hepatitis. And they might not be scary elevated, but it should be something that should be monitored. So if you are seeing even mild elevations of like a PT of what, 24 seconds, it's elevated. It's not scary yet, but at least you know that you can probably start vitamin right. K therapy for now. <laughs> right. I yeah, did want exactly. to talk a little bit in detail about running bile acids on these patients. I'm sure we'll have a liver shunt episode coming up. I haven't looked too far ahead. I think there's <laughs> yeah. one coming up. But our bile acids level is something that should be run even in our chronic hepatitis patients. It's not just used for when we're suspecting a portosystemic shunt. So these levels can be yep. very abnormal in our chronic hepatitis, but it's not specific for chronic hepatitis. So <laughs> no, it just it tells it, you that it's it not functioning properly. The function, yeah. So so I was gonna say it's it's. A functioning liver versus is it not functioning which can be uh, non <laughs> what <laughs> no <laughs> yeah that's bad 
it's bad. It's bad. You need but to yeah, remember. so bioacid <laughs> testing tests for hepatic function as well as portal venous circulation. So again, that's why we use it to test for portosystemic shunts. But again, we're looking also too mm -hmm. for hepatic function. So what they're looking for when they do bioacids testing is we talked about our bioacids in our basics episode. Bioacids are produced in the liver from cholesterol and then stored in the gallbladder. We talked about it in our gallbladder episode a lot. Feeding stimulates the gallbladder to contract and release bioacids into the intestines, where bioacids are then reabsorbed by the intestines and taken up by hepatocytes for re-excretion uh, re into the bile. So what the bile acids test mm. measures is the liver's ability for the hepatocytes to produce or extract bile acids. Or with liver shunts, then it's testing the portal blood flow that can bypass the liver, not allowing the hepatocytes to actually do their job. So you're seeing kind of both mm. functions, like either your hepatocytes are just not functioning, they're not taking up the, the bile acids, or portal blood flow is just bypassing the liver altogether. So hepatocytes don't even get a chance to do their job. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and, and we'll talk about it in the hepatic portal shunt kind of thing. Uh, these, these aren't just mild no. <laughs> in bile acids. These are woo. Okay. Kind of elevations. Um, and so I think we get a lot of cases that transfer to us that they're like, we think it has a shunt because it's bile acids with like, you know, five to 10 points above normal. And we're like, no, but y yes, there's, there may be a little bit of liver dysfunction, but this is not a shunt yeah. patient. <laughs> right? yeah. So I thought that was pretty interesting just because like, I knew like, it, it's kind of like every time we do these episodes, I have a general idea as to why we're testing <laughs> for things and like what the test does. But when I actually start doing more research and kind of learning exactly what it's looking for, it's always like just yeah. a little bit mind blowing. So, because again, like I have a general sense, I, I, yeah. but <laughs> sometimes when I think about it, it amazes me that anything is alive. <laughs> I'm like, it's just, it's, it just seems like it should all break right? all the time. It, it's like when you start getting into the nitty gritty details, like all these organs look like it's kind of amazing whippets where you just look at them wrong and it breaks like, and just like, <laughs> I, I was like, whip it. What? Yeah, yeah. Got it. Like they're just, okay, they just yeah. seem so fragile. Yeah, yeah. And yet they love homeostasis. I know. Don't, don't mess with it. <laughs> the other diagnostics, um, that we can do is, uh, so radiographs, ultrasound, um, x-rays are good to see, you know, is, is it a small liver? So microhepatica, it, you know, do we look at it and we're like, oh, there's barely any liver there. Um, so especially like if you're suspicious of like a hepatic portal vein, that might be something that, that you look for. Um, or you can, you can sometimes see the ascites present on x-rays. Um, so it'll be poor detail kind of washed out, um, images. Uh, so, you know, that's kind of our first line of defense is look for, look at radiographs and especially because that's available. In, and it's cheaper GPs. than ultrasound um, usually. Yes. Most, most of the time, time. but and it, I don't know, it's nice to go hand in hand with ultrasound. I'll always be a good proponent to right. advocating for radiographs to well, be they, used with ultrasound. 
Yeah, I was going to say, because they, they look at different mm-hmm. things, right? So your radiographs are going to look and see, is there an opacity? Like, is there a foreign body in there? And now we have metal toxicity, oh, yeah. right? Or, <laughs> you know, do you see um, a foreign body? Or, you know, so x-rays really are, they, it's they like are when you take important. an x-ray and then you're like, oh, there's a nickel in the stomach. That explains so much. That yeah. explains your anemia, your liver elevations, like <laughs> your right? gastric ulcers, like. And you're like, and and I didn't really see that exactly. Like you can't see there that. was food in the stomach or you know whatever it is. So yeah, and then the ultrasounds can be used to like, especially we get a lot of the cases where they'll see like a small liver on X-ray, and then they'll send it to us for an ultrasound. Mm-hmm. And what we'll do is we'll just look and really get measurements of the liver. We'll check the gallbladder to see if there's any obstructions. We'll look for any abnormal nodules on the liver. Um, we can also see scant amounts of ascites where you can't really see that on x-rays all the time. Um, and then of course, if you can see if there's like a gallbladder that's upset, (laughs) we talked about that last week. Um, and you can see, you can also see obstruction mm-hmm. of gallbladder, so bile ducts. Um, we've I've definitely seen it where there's a foreign body and it just happens to be really sitting at the um, the papilla, so where the bile duct comes out into the intestines, and it's actually caused a blockage, a functional blockage, or well, it's not really functional, but a blockage because the foreign object is is just blocking that duct exit and so now we've got inflammation and we had you know we had this really cool case and i really don't remember the specific details of this case but i believe Mm. an x-ray was taken and it looked like the dog had like a sewing needle in the stomach so we did ultrasound but it was one of those things where it only came over with one view radiographs like it was just a lateral You're like, where exactly? So we repeated films and we did an ultrasound and turns out it was the sewing needle had migrated out of the stomach into the liver. And yeah, because we were originally going to scope it, but we repeated films and we did the ultrasound. We could actually see it on ultrasound in the liver. It was just this perfect little straight line. (gasps) And like, of course it had that like glowy effect when we shined like across it. Um, when it's metal yeah. it reflects really yeah really well. and like yeah. which was kind of unfortunate because the dog had to go to surgery but it was kind of a quick simple surgery like we were all standing by the window of the surgery suite and like <laughs> they had like they sterilized the surgeon sterilized a magnet and then opened up the dog stuck the magnet like on the liver and just pulled out the sewing needle closed the dog up woke up it was like a 10 minute surgery it was the coolest thing Whoa! like and the dog recovered wow. never had yeah. any like significant permanent damage it was a young dog too it was a maltese that's crazy yeah i was gonna say a young dog and not so much damage that the liver could and it wasn't a lab i think i've seen some crazy things right exactly how is where's your husband now (laughs) i didn't think it was a cat i know right he's like you're picking on the labs no it wasn't a lab this time the other thing too with um, ultrasound, you can see if there's a mm-hmm. bleeding mass instead of just general, you know, third space kind of situation. If it's hemorrhaging because there's a mass in there, and that's why that's what the problem is. So ultrasound's really good at looking 
at structures and mm. movements and stuff, whereas radiographs are more structure and anatomy. And yeah, and you can, thing, if you're so. doing ultrasound and you do notice ascites after coag testing, you can do mm -hmm. abdominocentesis mm -hmm. to really mm -hmm. determine if the ascites is blood or mm -hmm. if it is just fluid and you can obtain like total protein on the fluid if it's not obvious blood. You can obtain PCVs. You can get a bilirubin yeah. on it. Um, yeah. So ultrasound can be super useful, especially the more like progressive a disease is. ANA testing yeah. should also be done just to rule out other infectious diseases. Again, we're going to go into more detail about that next week, but it should be performed before mm -hmm. you just say, yep, chronic hepatitis. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> or right. before you move forward with a liver biopsy. Mm, yeah. Liver biopsies are kind of the gold standard. It is required to truly diagnose chronic hepatitis after you've ruled out everything else you want to document <laughs> the type of inflammation <laughs> that the liver is experiencing. Same thing when we do mm -hmm. intestinal biopsies, we, 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 wanna, we wanna document the specific type of inflammation. Um, also, you're gonna rule out, you're gonna perform aerobic and anaerobic cultures like we talked about last week. You're gonna do samples for copper, iron, and zinc quantification just to rule out any sort of metal toxicities. Samples should be obtained mm -hmm. from multiple liver, liver lobes and not just like abnormal lesions. So if, if you have a knobby liver, knobby lobulated you don't want to just have the surgeon take samples from just the abnormal areas you want to get samples from multiple lobes because mm -hmm. again there's six so <laughs> plenty to yeah, choose from and, it, and it's really good to remember you do have a couple of different options right when we're talking liver biopsy um, unfortunately we can't do it endoscopically. Mm -hmm. That's just not an option. We can't get to the liver. Um, but they can do it with traditional mm -hmm. surgery. So abdominal, like a abdominal explorer, take liver biopsies, look to see if there's anything else that needs to be biopsied while you're in there. Um, check the gallbladder, make sure it expresses really well. Um, or the other option is uh, like laparoscopic liver biopsy. Um, so that's minimally invasive. It's still invasive, but it's less invasive than full surgery. Um, and, and so that's an option. Uh, do you do, do you guys do true cut biopsies? No, we don't. Yeah, I, I don't. Well, the doctors I work with don't um, because there's no real way to like hold off mm -hmm. bleeding. <laughs> You're taking a chunk of liver with a needle, but there's no way to really hold off that or ligate. So um, we usually don't do true cuts. When we're talking about these situations too, like we aspirate livers all the time, but... Mm -hmm. Aspiration's okay. Like ultrasound guided aspiration doesn't require, doesn't typically require general anesthesia, but you're not getting large samples. Mm -mm. So it's definitely not large enough samples to do copper, iron, and zinc quantification. No. Um, Cause you do need true like tissue samples for that. Sometimes you can get an answer with aspirates, but it's just not the same as getting a true liver biopsy. We save our right, aspirates for I mean like specific, like massive lesions. <laughs> yeah, that looks scary. So our, yeah. Um, because cytology, you're, it's different than a biopsy because the cytology takes a sample of cells and then just spews them on a slide. So you lose that structure that you would have with like a, a core biopsy. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, if, if you're worried about like something like lymphoma, yeah, 
yes, then do cytology because you're going to be able to see those mitotic cells in, in the aspirate versus if you're worried about copper, then that you're not doing an aspirate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We've done aspirates plenty of times just for the weird, like marbly looking livers. And then mm. them still kind of come back inconclusive where we then recommend liver biopsy. So we'll start small right. yep. before recommending surgery. I mean, we're internists. We don't recommend surgery if we don't have to. <laughs> Usually we don't. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, cytology, I, I don't always use sedation for no. it. No. Some patients are really good and we just ultrasound guided aspirate of the liver. Yeah. And that's it, you know, just one poke and that, and, and most of them are okay with that. Um, if not a little bit of sedation, but it usually doesn't require like full anesthesia. Mm-mm. Like that's, you shouldn't be doing that. Plus it's a liver patient, you know, liver the less drugs on board, the better, <laughs> especially well, if we're so... thinking we're dealing with chronic hepatitis right? Exactly. or acute hepatitis. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. So those are, you know, those are different options as far as like the biopsies and getting samples of the actual liver. Yeah. So treatment for these patients is typically managed medically and generally mm-hmm. just supportive care. So we'll talk about this a little bit more when we discuss client communication, but it is super important to inform clients that we're not fixing a problem. We're just trying to slow down progression, but unfortunately yeah. it is very difficult to avoid medications that have some sort of effect on the liver and some sort of liver metabolism, uh, metabolism. So yes, we know that's one of the big functions of the liver. (laughs) Exactly. So yes, we are going to be prescribing drugs and yes, they could still affect the liver, but yes, we're prescribing them because we anticipate that they're going to help the liver slow down its Mm -hmm. disease progression. So mm-hmm. again, that's the goal is just to slow disease progression, not correct the problem. Correcting the problem is a goal it's when we are, a yeah, is when we're thing, not so much chronic, chronic. Exactly. We're going to try to make it as, as good as we can. We definitely want to correct <laughs> the problem when it's acute hepatitis, but again, not always possible, but for right. chronic hepatitis, we're, it's like chronic renal disease. We're just slowing the progression. So mm-hmm. antibiotics are typically prescribed after liver biopsies, and they usually stay on board until the biopsy results come back. Um, same with the culture results. And then either the antibiotics are discontinued or modified based on these results of the liver biopsy. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes they're extended out for a lot longer. We talked about ursodiol mm-hmm. last week, and this is used as a liver protectant medication as well as an anti-inflammatory uh, choleretic. And then my doctor uses vitamin E a lot. So vitamin E is used for its anti-fibrotic purposes and it's an antioxidant as well. Same as our SAM-E that we Mm. talked about last week is used as an antioxidant. So it's just- Or known as Denimarin. Yep. Like that's the brand we typically talk about, but it's SAM-E. I mean, it's the same same thing, just formulated specifically for animals. Yeah. Denimarin is such a good product. That's one of those products too. That's also good to start. If you do have a patient that you suspect might be a little liver sensitive and are starting say mm. like anti-convulsant medications. I know when my epileptic mm. dog started some anti-convulsant medications for her epilepsy, I started SAMe with it as well, just to help protect her liver. Support yep. it. Yeah. So yep. 
just because you don't have a liver problem yet doesn't mean that you can't try to protect it. <laughs> you can't prevent some. Yeah. yeah. Like, especially in your older patients, you Pounds have a prevention pound of a cure. Yeah. Like you have a 14 year old cocker who comes in for arthritis and really needs some NSAIDs, but the liver's like borderline already, but still normal. And you just want to just help protect it a little Give bit longer. Give them some gabapentin. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Sivan. <laughs> but um scare me in our old patients. I'm like, no, don't do it. I know. I know. But it's still I know so common. Do it, but whew, it scares me because I've seen so many of them go into liver failure and I'm like, yeah. Um, immunosuppressive drugs are cautiously used after biopsies indicate that an active disease process is occurring and infectious diseases or toxins have been ruled out. So that is key. We don't want to start immunosuppressive drugs unless it's indicated. So right. we don't want to yeah. start- Because if you have an infection, <laughs> you don't want to suppress the immune system. Exactly. But you also yeah. want to prove that there is active disease process happening in the liver. You don't want to just, mm-hmm. you don't want the biopsy to come back inconclusive and then be like, well, let's start some prednisone. Um, so these medications are that are commonly used are prednisone or prednisolone or dexamethasone. They are titrated down to give, to administer at the lowest effective dose. And then of course, too, we want to avoid some of those clinical signs or symptoms that can occur with those drugs. Azathioprine can also be used, but it has a slower onset and you don't typically see results for up to eight weeks. And then um, with azathioprine too, it can cause bone marrow suppression. So follow-up CBCs should really be performed to monitor these patients, which we've talked about before. Um, And then other supportive medications can be used to just combat things like our decreased appetite, our nauseousness, our, you know, acidy stomach, uh, Mm -hmm. diarrhea that can occur. So you're going to do other supportive medications, just knowing (laughs) that it's going to be metabolized in the liver as well. I was going to say like the holy grail of internal medicine. So like some meropitans, mm-hmm. some ondansetron, some metronidazole, yep. <laughs> some mirtazapine, you know, all the, all the normal internal medicine drugs. <laughs> yeah. It's like when the day that we don't prescribe ondansetron, I was like, what's happening? <laughs> oh God. The world has gone crazy. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> like we're not prescribing appetite stimulant and nausea medications. What? <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. And we, I will say, because we can't forget this part, <clears throat> there's also a nutritional component. Yes. Right. I forget to, so we need to add in our nutrition. Um, there is liver specific diets. So especially if you have biopsy results that like a copper toxicity Mm -hmm. or something like that, then you're going to want low copper foods. Um, or if you know, you've just kind of got a general liver disease, you you might want to switch to like a liver specific diet. Um, so that's just something to, to, to keep in mind is there are foods, especially because if you think about it, right, the gut absorbs the food Mm -hmm. And then where does it go? Yeah, exactly. I mean, same thing with like the bile acids and like, yeah, it all works (laughs) together. Um, So yeah, liver diets are actually really important. And we'll touch on that more, especially in the copper episode when we talk about that. Mm -hmm. But I have had a, it was a hepatitis patient with copper-ish disease, but turns out that the dog's main diet was like mushrooms. And mushrooms oh. are actually super high in copper. 
it was like mushrooms and lamb or something like that and it was like the two things that were like top of the list of like copper wow. yeah it was really really weird so so it was a it wasn't a storage disease so much as just a, a toxicity disease overdose yeah <laughs> like so oh, dang. we put the dog on normal dog food not even a liver diet we just put the dog on normal dog food and the dog's liver values and copper values went back to normal Wow. I know. It's like, it's like one of those things that I'm like, it's too simple. I'm like, there's no way that this case is that simple. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're like, Oh, Hey, it works. But yeah, that's the importance of a balanced nutritional diet for our pets. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And history taking, like to find out exactly yeah. what your client is feeding your dog, especially when you ruled yeah. out so many things. Like, I think that was the thing is they came to us because the referring veterinarian ruled out so many things that they're like it has to be copper storage like we're sending it to you for a liver biopsy it got to us we're like well the surgeon does liver biopsies but <laughs> like and then we got a history we're like right wait a second which is great too because then the dog avoided surgery nice yeah that's awesome yeah so client communication is important with these patients just because it is important kind of like we ranted about a little bit at the beginning of the episode <laughs> about pharmacological side effects. So we really want to discuss that with our clients, discuss with clients that the goal is to slow progression and not necessarily correct the problem. So yes, we're going to recommend follow-ups. We're going to recommend rechecking that ALT every two months or so. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's unlikely to go back to normal, but we'll be happy if it comes from 500 down to 300. Like we'll, we'll be thrilled. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. And yes, we're like, yeah. The dog will probably be on lifelong medication, unfortunately. Mm. And then sometimes follow-up, like if the patient's already had a biopsy performed, sometimes a follow-up biopsy might be recommended just to really get a close monitoring of that disease progression. But typically ALT is monitored just because it's the easiest form of monitoring. And then right. prognosis can widely vary. Some of these dogs live for five, six, seven years. Some dogs live for seven months to a year months depending yeah. on what disease is going on yeah. and it depends on when you initially see or diagnose the problem too so right. how soon how long has the chronic liver disease yeah. been because especially yeah. once cirrhosis starts kicking in you're yeah. on a fast downward slope once cirrhosis starts yeah. kicking in um yeah that's like that's you're getting towards end stage liver disease, which is really sad. Yeah, it is sad because it's like we talked about this briefly, where I'm like, I hate cirrhosis, just because the moment mm. you like see it on ultrasound, because it does have a specific look to it. The liver's all mm. shriveled and small and tiny and just bright uh, from yeah. scar tissue, and the moment you see that, you're just like, shoot, like there's literally nothing we can do. Yeah, and it sucks. Yeah. Those are the heartbreaking cases. Cautions for these patients is just to be sure to really discuss all the possible rule outs with your doctor, just because again, you're a veterinary professional. Like you are allowed to speak up and be like, hey, before we jump to a liver biopsy, maybe we should do some leptospirosis testing or, you know, we need mm -hmm. to do some sort of other testing to rule out some tick-borne diseases or things like that. Speak up for your patient. You're an advocate. It's fine. And honestly, I think from a doctor's standpoint, like if you're using your brain too, and just be like, I mean, we're all human. We forget things and we just kind mm -hmm. of go straight towards certain things, especially if you have kind of like a routine. Um, right. <laughs> it, it happens. And I don't think any 
technician or assistant or nurse or whatever should feel bad for suggesting performing more tests. Well, and I think it's, it's also kind of important to remember that if that is something you guys are suspicious of wearing proper PPE, Mm -hmm. right? If, if you submit a lepto test and you're waiting for the results, you should be treating that patient as though it has. Oh, for sure. Because the great thing and about so lepto is it stops shedding after 48 hours of starting antibiotics. <laughs> right, exactly. So, but I mean, if you're suspicious of something that's potentially zoonotic or, you know, communicable amongst patients, you know, that's something too to, to understand and understand the rule outs so that you could properly handle the patient the excrements, you know, any of that stuff, because you don't, you don't want to be the cause of spreading something. Mm -hmm. Like you always feel very responsible if that happens. So you don't want to, you know, be the one that accidentally spread something because you didn't know or didn't ask or something like that. So again, err on the side of caution. Hopefully you guys are all washing your hands between patients anyways especially right now. Well, and you know, understanding those rule outs is a big thing. And sometimes too, like it just kind of opens up a discussion. Like I'll do this a lot with my Mm -hmm. doctor. I'm like, well, why aren't we doing this instead? Like, why are we doing this instead of this? And then like, just to hear his explanation as to how his brain is thinking, Mm -hmm. because usually he is, I always think that maybe one day I'll, I'll, I'll get him and I'll be like, Oh, I've forgotten something. And then I'll bring something up and he's like, no, he gives me some great elaborate explanation as to why he's doing exactly what he's doing, which is great too, because it helps me learn. But like, I'm like, oh man, we should totally do this test. And he's like, no, no, no. It's already been ruled out just because they did this and this and this. And it might not be a standard way of ruling out Mm -hmm. something. So it's it's just fun to kind of pick your doctor's brain as to why they're going and the steps that they're going to make a diagnosis. Yeah. And then I've definitely had conversations with my doctor where I'm like, hey, you did blah, 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 Mm -hmm. blah, blah the last time. You know, why aren't we doing it that way this time? Why aren't we doing it? And they're like, oh yeah, good point. And maybe they go, yeah, let's go ahead and do that. Yeah. And so it's, you know, it, again, <laughs> doctors are humans as much as sometimes they feel like they're, yeah, not. they are human. Um, and sometimes it's that it's nice to have that relationship with your doctor. Um, or if you're a doctor with your technicians, um, to be able to bounce ideas off mm-hmm. of and have, someone who thinks very similarly to you um, and be able to have a discussion. I think in this field, you can work things out that way. Too. Oh yeah. And I think in this field too, we can, we should just have each other's backs. Like there's times where yeah. my doctor will, it's very rare, but he'll make a mistake and I'll, I'll just happen to catch it like on the treatment sheet. And I'm like, and I'll bring it up too. And I'll, Did you mean- yeah, I'm just like, Hey, we're doing this dilution this way, but normally we make it up like this. And he's like, Oh shoot. Like I just miswrote it. Like I wrote down in mills when I meant in milligrams. And, and so it's just like minor human error, but like I have his back, you know, I know that it right. looks different than how we normally do it. And we have a good relationship to where like, it doesn't come off as I, I'm a know-it-all. And it, it, it's, it's nice. Cause I think in this field right. and just given how my normal personality is and how I'm always anxious about what I say to anybody, <laughs> like it's nice oh to God. not feel <laughs> like he thinks I'm just trying to step on his toes and be like a, a doctor for him. And I'm, cause that's not what oh I'm doing. God. No. So 
your backup. You're the backup. Exactly. <laughs> There's definitely different levels and we all got to make sure that like, again, we're human. Things can happen. So. Right. It's the tip of the week. Tip of the week this week is going to be just because these patients are at risk for hemorrhage, PCV monitoring should be performed frequently on these patients just as well, like especially after a liver biopsy. Mm. Monitoring these patients in general, we talked about it a little bit last week after cholecystectomies, how it's pretty critical to monitor these patients. After liver biopsy, it's not as scary, but you still run the risk of hemorrhage. Uh, but and so yeah. you still want to know what to look out for. So PCV monitoring should be performed pretty frequently because that way too, the moment that you suspect hemorrhage, you can start plasma transfusions, you can start vitamin K therapy, you can just start mm -hmm. kind of combating it before it gets bad. And now for the question of the week. This is a multi-parter just because I felt like my first question wasn't enough. <laughs> <laughs> so have you ever assisted with obtaining a liver biopsy sample? If so, how did it go? How did you, did you have to manage any sort of coagulopathies with it or bleeding before or after the procedure? What did you learn from assisting with a procedure like this? I ask because I've never mm -hmm. actually performed or assisted with a liver biopsy. Oh, ah, again, oh. surgery department. <laughs> yeah okay i work a lot in surgery so yeah. <laughs> i'm like oh for sure yeah huh yeah and you don't do true cuts no so that makes sense that you're not doing um liver biopsies yeah i know my doctor used to do true cuts but that was at his last practice and he doesn't do them anymore because our surgeon likes to do liver biopsies so now we just yeah and i think i feel like a true cut biopsy of livers has fallen out of favor mm -hmm. um because there are more compli compl potential complications just because you're not in the patient looking at the, you're just using an ultrasound. So, yeah. Uh, which that's not a bad thing. It's just, there are more risks associated with it. So yeah. Like messing with the yeah. liver and cutting into it is risky anyway, let alone doing it without <laughs> being able to correct bleeding the issue. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, yeah, that's why I chose the question of the week. Um, cause I'm just curious. Mm, I've never, nice. how did it go? Would you learn? I like learning. I'm so going to answer this question in the membership. I'm, I'm excited about this. Do it. Cause I didn't answer last week's question. Ah, <laughs> uh -huh. well, as I say, because I've assisted with both laparoscopic as well as, um, XLAP. Oh, nice. GI biopsy or GI. Well, obviously GI biopsies as well, but, um, but liver biopsies. Yes. And I, and I have some pictures, so I can probably, oh, definitely. I could probably share that in the membership. <laughs> yeah. Cause in, in general practice, I've definitely assist with, assisted with intestinal biopsies. I've assisted with splenectomies. I've assisted with a lot of mm. stuff, but not liver biopsy. Hmm. So interesting. Yeah. Nice. It's a good question. Yeah. All right. So if you guys want to answer that question, I will post it on Facebook. It'll be in our membership. Ha ha ha. Um, it'll also be on like the normal show notes page. So please feel free to answer it. Cause again, I like to learn. I like to know what other people learn from things. And um, yeah. Yeah. Other than that, that wraps up this Any episode. Things about hepatitis. Well, we're going to talk about more hepatitis next week. Sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> We love the liver. Yep. 
All right, guys. Well, have a wonderful week. We hope, um, you know, you're staying safe and sane wherever you are um, and uh, get your learn on. Hopefully we'll see a couple of you guys in the membership, but uh, either way, have a wonderful week and we'll talk to you next week. All right, guys. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you like what you heard, we'd love for you to share with someone you think might enjoy the podcast and make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Want to give us a boost? Please leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher and we'll be sure to say thank you. Find out everything about us at internalmedicineforvettechs.com. Talk to you next week. Bye.